Culture Map presents What's Eric Eating? From the Gal Media Studios in Houston, Texas, here's Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. Welcome to What's Eric Eating? Culture Map's weekly look at all things Houston bars and restaurants. I'm your host, Culture Map food editor Eric Sandler. I have Sean Carroll from Melange Crapery coming up in a little bit. Uh, but first, this is my periodic reminder that if you ever have any questions or comments about the show, you can always email me, eric, E-R-I-C, at culturemap.com. You can also subscribe to this podcast on iTunes and Google Play. And if you like it, please rate it. Uh, as Katie Nolan always says, uh, only if it's five stars and only if it's nice. Uh, and with that, I will move on to introduce this week's co-host, my good friend, uh, Matt Harris. Matt, welcome back to the show. How are you? Doing well, sir. Good to be back. Thanks for being here. Uh, let us dive into the news of the week. It's been a busy, it, it's always a busy week in Houston restaurants, right? Uh, starting with the news that Hickory Hollow, the uh, very beloved 30 plus year old comfort food restaurant at the corner of Heights Boulevard and Washington Avenue has sold that property to uh, the real estate developer Braun Enterprises. They will be closing that location in January of 2019. Now, they still have a location in Northwest Houston. Uh, it's very important to them. That will be the, the home of, of Hickory Hollow, but for interloopers who are used to being able to go to Hickory Hollow and at, any, at the drop of a hat and for a chicken fried steak or some of their, their barbecue, uh, this has been very traumatic. Uh, as evidenced by uh, um, driving by and seeing how full the parking lot is. <laughs> yes, it's been a very full parking lot uh, and a tremendous, tremendous um, reader response on Culture Map to my article. Uh, the most read story for the month of August, uh, running away. So, I, you know, I always feel like there's a certain amount of like Houston tears down its history and and you know, we never preserve anything. I, I don't really feel like this is one of those occasions. I think this is um, a restaurant owner and a landowner who like made a lot of money on an investment he made 30 years ago. I think this is good news. Like this is good news for uh, Tony Reale, the owner of Hickory Hollow and good news like for Houston diners in that something new and interesting will be taking that location. Sure. It's, you know, when, when, um, you know, truth be told, it, it's been several years since I've been to Hickory Hollow, um, which isn't anything against them. I just haven't been. Um, I pass by it regularly and I think, uh, you know, they have a location and in, in North Houston or out sort of near the horse track, near the horse track. Um, you know, if, if I have a hankering for Hickory Hollow, I can still go visit them. But uh, I much look forward to what's going to be going in that space. Yeah, I mean, it's still unknown. Um, Ronnie Killen has been sort of publicly flirting with it uh, on his Facebook page. I mean, Ronnie, Ronnie's never shy about stirring the pot. Uh, I can tell you that it won't be barbecue because that would put his barbecue right across the street from Truth Barbecue. And I don't think either one of them wants to do that. Well, if there's one kind of flirting I like, it's public. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I'm in the same boat as you with Hickory Hollow. It's been a long time since I went there. 
uh, I associate my visits there with a long ago relationship where my ex and her family, it was kind of a, a regular spot for them. And so it doesn't give me the warm fuzzies that it does uh, for other people. My old school chicken fried steak craving is more likely to be dot coffee shop. Uh, but certainly sometime between now and January, I'm going back to Hickory Hollow at least once, getting a combo plate, you know, brisket ribs. I love that you can get chicken fried steak and barbecue on one combo plate. That really suits the, the excessive way that I like to feed myself. So I, I'll be back for, for some of that. And just that, that old school ambiance with all the stuff on the walls, the wood paneling, like you can't really replicate that. That doesn't really exist anymore. No, no, it, it is. And, and, you know, being a, a native Houstonian, it, it, it's, uh, it does have a, there's a bit of nostalgia there. Um, I don't remember eating there as, as a younger person, uh, kind of more college years or right after college. Uh, but I could see myself going before they close. We'll, we'll round up all of the co-hosts and I'll treat We'll take, I'll take uh, all of y'all is, out. Is this being recorded? We have this press. Mike, Mike, producer Michael Carroll. Uh, Michael can come. Michael can come with us. We'll, we'll take, we'll take the whole <laughs> what's Eric eating mishpacha out for, for chicken fried steak and uh, domestic long necks. It'll be great. I'm in. All right. Uh, let us move on. Uh, the original Ninfas on navigation, not to be confused with the, the very few remaining licensed Ninfas is growing. Um, they, they announced plans last week to do two things. Uh, the first is to open a location in the former Pesca spot at the corner of Post Oak and San Felipe. It will be called the original Ninfas Uptown. They are also working on a fast casual conflict, a fast casual concept called Mama Ninfas Tacos y Tortas. It's going to have its first location in the understory food hall thus checking the What's Eric Eating Drinking Game food hall news item of the week. Uh, and then they will also open a few more of those as standalone restaurants, fast casual style. Uh, it has been pointed out that there used to be a Ninfas on Post Oak that became, what was that god-awful uh, Tex-Mex place that Carlos Mencia was vaguely connected to? The name escapes. The me. name escapes. Me. I I erased all long forgotten of yes. Anyway, it's it's not important, but there used to be a Ninfas in the neighborhood. That's gone. Ninfas is coming back to the neighborhood. Um, well, let me just pitch it to you. What do you think, Tex Mex and Tex Mex in the Galleria? Are you in on Ninfas expansion? I'm in, in a hundred percent. Yeah, you know, I I think it's kind of trendy to say that. Legacy Restaurants, the company that now owns that, that owns Ninfas, uh, you know, the family, the family is not, con the Lorenzo family is not connected to Ninfas anymore. They obviously are invested in El Tiempo and, and they've had a lot of success with that. But I, I do feel like it's sort of trendy to sort of bash Legacy and say Ninfas isn't as good as it used to be. As someone who remembers eating there in the 90s and seeing Mama Ninfa greeting diners in the dining room. Uh, I strongly disagree with that. And I, I really feel like Alex Padilla, the chef there, you know, his mother worked there in the 70s and 80s. He went and had a, a very good culinary career in California, came home, 
Uh, I feel like Ninfas is as good as it has ever been. It, um, I, I have memories that that go back a little further as, as I have you by a few years, but, um, you know, that was where we went, um, for special occasions growing up and, you know, fond memories, uh, eating there, uh, with, uh, my grandparents and mama Nympha work in the dining room. Um, you know, and then the, the expansion of, of the Nymphas, they started popping up, um, all throughout Houston, um, right. I mean, the, my first Ninfa's memory is the one on Memorial Drive, like west of Derry Ashford. Uh, and then we used to go to one, I want to say, well, there was one in Sugarland for a little while near where I grew up. So that was kind of our Ninfa's. There's also before one before there was a Papacitos. Yes. Uh, Bunker Hill, right, or right near Memorial High School, uh, which was the one we would go to if we didn't go to the one on navigation. Um, but your 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 uh, comments about Alex, I think, are really what's driving my my uh, interest uh, for the new location and, and the new concept. So it's it's exciting the the sort of legacy of uh, Nymphas and in, in the Houston restaurant scene is something that I think has taken uh, a big step forward here in the last. Uh, year to two years yeah and i'm intrigued by this new fast casual concept you know they've been real light on the specifics but it will have you know some street style tacos it'll have tacos au carbone of course it'll have uh the margaritas that's a really key component of that you know obviously at a time when places like torchies and velvet taco and taco deli are all coming in from outside of the city and have had a lot of success i am uh intrigued by a local, a, a local version that, that knows the city and, and can kind of grow with us. And, and I, I just think it makes a lot of sense for Ninfas to, to also expand in that direction. Right. And let's hope that what they're not doing is what Torchies and Velvet Taco and Taco Deli are doing. Using pre-made, like, right. It's, it's, it, Right. One of the things that sets Ninfas apart is that the tortillas are very good. Absolutely. And so whatever they do, even in a fast casual environment, like as long as they're using freshly made tortillas, they should be in pretty good shape. That's that's a big step in the right direction. <laughs> um, and then just briefly, I should note uh, Petite Sweets has closed uh, the sweet shop at West Alabama and Kirby. I, this is this one stings a little bit for me because it was a favorite of mine. I've been a Susan Molzan was the the partner, the the baker who kind of oversaw that. It was it was connected to Feed Texas for a little while. Lee Ellis brought it with him to Cherry Pie Hospitality. Um, you know, speaking of eighties and nineties restaurant memories, I mean, I remember when Susan Molzan was part of Ruggles Grill, and the best thing about any meal at Ruggles Grill was the giant oversized dessert tray that hit the table at the end you know she created that white chocolate bread pudding that became kind of a houston classic and everything else and then i also found out subsequently that she invented the strawberry cassata cake at lagrilla which is maybe my all-time favorite houston dessert like i i haven't i haven't thought about that deeply enough to really rank them but if i did a top five houston desserts it would certainly be there so yeah i'm gonna miss petite sweets uh Yes, I think that they always did a good job, and you know they were in the neighborhood. Um, 
things happen. Right. There's an ongoing saga with Cherry Pie Hospitality, but really once H-E-B bought that land uh, with plants to turn it into a grocery store, uh, the fix was in for Petite Suites. Uh, I spoke to Susan briefly. I do not get the sense that this is the last we have heard of her. Uh, I certainly hope not because, like I said, her desserts are just too good, and, and I, I don't want to... I don't want to know that I've eaten my last uh, Susan Malzahn pastry. Yeah, I think that's the bigger takeaway. Um, as as you're familiar, the desserts are my Achilles heel. Uh, and so uh, look forward to seeing her reemerge, her talents reemerge, and um, hopefully in not too distant future. All right. And then I do just briefly want to touch on this um, GQ article that kind of blew up uh, locally on social media last week. Brett Martin's Brett Martin wrote this really long essay about how awesome Houston is. He explored, he, he did the usual things you would expect um, someone writing about Houston to do. He talked to Chris Shepard. He met with Bun B, but he also touched on a whole bunch of other communities. Uh, he went to the bookity bookity Boudin man. He went to the Manil and checked out their new facility. It's, it's a wonderful read. And I would highly, I'll, I'll link to it. But as a companion to that, he published a shorter, uh, how to eat, how to eat Houston in eight dishes. So Matt, I want to just, I want to run through these real quick. Uh, and you, you just give me like a thumbs up, thumbs down on these. All in crawfish at Cassian crawfish. Thumbs up. This is your, this is your favorite crawfish spot. It is not my favorite crawfish spot. It, it is one of them. Uh, they do a very good job. Um, the, uh, I would say, I don't know if I should let the cat out of the bag where my favorite spot is. Ooh, maybe we'll save that for crawfish season. Okay. Let's do that. All right. Barbacoa at Hugo's. You know, Hugo's, uh, is an institution. I think it's one of the, um, one of the restaurants that sort of put this momentum that Houston's had for the the past five to seven years. Um, the barbacoa at Hugo's is, is great to me. It, 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 right. I think you have to include something of Hugo Ortega's on a list like this. Uh, I don't know that it necessarily would have been the barbacoa for me. Um, because when I think of barbacoa, I think of Gerardo's. Yes. All right. Pastrami beef rib at Tejas Chocolate Craftery. That should be number one on the list. Really? Absolutely. I've never had their uh I've never had their pastrami beef rib. It, it's what it it is fantastic. Um I, everything that uh Scott and Greg and those guys do is fantastic. Um and some of the stuff that they're doing right now it, is really blowing my mind. So. Yeah, Tejas is kind of, you know, I think they were an unexpected choice to be ranked the sixth best barbecue joint in Texas by Texas Monthly last year. But I think they have responded to that ranking by pushing themselves forward in a bunch of directions. Uh, new creative sausages, new menu items, all the barbecue soups. Uh, I don't think Tejas would have been my barbecue pick. Like I, I probably would have picked Corkscrew or Killens, but I have no objection to Tejas. I just I thought that was an unusual choice. I, I, of course, I was preempting a little bit because out of the list to me that should have been number one. Okay. Smoked oxtails at Ray's Real Pit Barbecue Shack. 
big fan. I still haven't had this. I was uh, was a coin flip whether I went um, Thursday or Friday to go have them. Every Thursday, right? Every Thursday. Thank you. All right. Yeah, I gotta. I now I want to go. I mean, I've, I've it's been on my list of places to try for a couple of months since they moved to their new location, and I want to go for the smoked oxtails. But now I'm worried that there's going to be a huge crowd because of this article, and I'm not going to want to. If we say it's a date, do you think people will talk? They might. It's a date. All right. Uh, Paris Breast at Theodore Rex. Uh, it's um, uh, actually just had the delightful um, opportunity to have this um, this past week. Uh, it it's it's a pretty unique dessert. Um, right. I I, I kind of feel like this is Hugo. This is the Hugo Ortega thing. You want to have something by Justin Yu. I don't know that this would have been it for me. Um, maybe the tomato toast has been talked about too much. Maybe the, the party melted better like tomorrow has been overhyped. I don't know. Um, I like that Paris breast, but the best dessert that I had at Theodore Rex was this like strawberry thing he was doing uh, earlier in the summer. Uh, so. I, I, I So, yes. Yeah, so uh, maybe being a little, the answer is yes. But to your point there, yes, the, the party melt is probably the one that jumps out at me is, is his inclusion. But that Paris Bray is very good. Yes. Thank you for correcting my pronunciation. Yes. Uh, brisket taco at the pit room. Yes, it's, it's, it's pretty delicious. So the only problem, and I, I love the pit room and it's in my neighborhood and I go there on a pretty regular basis. I would have chosen the chicken taco. I think the chicken taco is better with the cheese and the roasted garlic. It's uh, it is above the brisket taco for me, but I'm not going to argue with its inclusion on the list. Smothered turkey wings at Alfredo's Soul Food. It's an interesting choice. Um, it's uh, you know sort of a Houston institution. Um, can't say uh, yes or no. I don't know if it's one of the eight things. Um, I think of the turkey necks at crawfish and noodles. Yeah, or maybe, man, they I don't know if they still do it at Kitchen 713, but that uh, yeah. turkey neck with the lettuce wrap and mm-hmm. the uh, fish sauce. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I mean, I don't, you know, like I, I've been to Alfreda's. It's been, it's been a few years. Um, no disrespect to what they do there. This would not have been on my list. There are other ways to highlight yes. African-American culinary contributions uh, I mean, hell, you know, we had Marcus Davis on the show uh, a few weeks ago. Like, let's go check out what um, Don Burrell's doing at, at Culture. I mean, there's, you know, you want next level, kind of next generation, or even what uh, Michelle Williams is doing at Gatlin's. I mean, there's some, Absolutely. There's some really talented uh, African-Americans doing some really cool stuff in this town right now. And uh, I think... Rather than rather than retro, I think I would have looked to the future. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna piggyback on your uh, kitchen seven one three suggestion. Those those turkey necks are fantastic. Uh, clam rapini pizza cultivare. Uh, again, I think cultivare probably deserves to be on the list. That doesn't necessarily do it for me, um, but I wouldn't say no. Yeah, I like the pizza cultivare. I tend to order salads and pastas 
unless I'm in a bigger group. So I don't get a lot of, like, I've had that clam pizza. It is very tasty. Uh, they do one with preserved lemon that I really like. That uh, one's very good. But I don't know. I think I, just because I like the salads at Cultivari so much, and it exemplifies what they're doing with the garden and the seasonal ingredients, I think that would have been my direction for Cultivari. But, um, and also because we can't keep talking about how good the black pepper spaghetti is. We've kind of beaten that in the ground. Fair it's enough. still very good. Yes. All right. Uh, that does it for the news of the week. We'll be right back with our restaurants of the week. Stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating? So for our restaurants of the week segment, I am going to be speaking to you by myself because there was a recording error with the original session with Matt, and unfortunately he is not available to re-record. Uh, but we do want to talk, or I do want to talk about two restaurants this week. The first is Vibrant, the recently opened healthy food restaurant uh, in Montrose. I had Kelly Barnhart on the show a couple of weeks ago, and we talked pretty in-depth about her vision for this new restaurant where everything is gluten-free, dairy-free, uses no refined sugars, and non-GMO ingredients. And one of the things that Kelly said when she was on the show was that she wanted the food to be tasty, even for people who don't care about any of that. So Matt and I went on opening day for breakfast, and we tried three things. We tried the buckwheat pancakes, we tried a, a chia pudding, and we tried the sweet toast, which is covered with apples and cinnamon and uses a bread recipe developed by Karen Mann, uh, one of the founders of Oxheart. Of the three of them, we found the buckwheat pancakes to be the most compelling. Uh, Matt thinks it might be one of the best dishes he's eaten all year. Uh, I'm not quite there with him on that, but I do think that the the texture, the flavor uh, is very compelling. And you wouldn't, you know, even compared to sort of more traditional flour-based fluffier pancakes, uh, the flavor, the texture of the buckwheat pancakes at Vibrant really holds up to the point that even though it came with a little side of syrup, we didn't really think that was necessary to enhance the flavor. Uh, in fact, we wound up pouring a little bit of the syrup into the chia pudding uh, that was a little more bland. It had a little bit of fruit in it. It had some, uh, it had some banana and a few raspberries in it, but the, uh, the syrup kind of lifted that to another level. And the sweet toast was excellent. Thinly sliced apples, really good texture on the toast. Um, just a, a very satisfying bite. Um, it certainly feels like Vibrant is off to a very strong start uh, and will be a restaurant that I think people are going to be really excited to try. I know that when I posted some pictures from it on Instagram, you know, immediately I started getting messages from people. Oh, it's open now. I can't wait to try it or, or tell me more about it. So uh, I know that there's a lot of interest in Vibrant. Uh, we had a very good meal there. Currently open for breakfast and lunch, uh, 7 a.m. to 4 p.m. The dinner menu is coming sometime in September. But uh, this is a restaurant that I think people are really going to want to try, and I'm, I'm anticipating a, a very favorable response as they kind of get it up and running. 
Now, the other restaurant we want to talk about is Shell Shack. This is the Dallas-based boiled seafood concept that just opened up uh, at the intersection of Sawyer and Washington Avenue. Uh, I think most people will think of that location as the pig stand. Once upon a time, it was the uh, Sawyer Park sports bar for a little while. Uh, but Shell Shack has taken it over uh, comprehensively, renovated the space. It feels like a sports bar. Uh, lots of TVs, a uh, very prominent bar, uh, both downstairs and upstairs. Um, this meal really could not have gone worse, I don't think. Uh, I think Matt and I walked in. You know, we, we, we got off to a bad start. Matt and I walked in. I think the host took one look at us, decided that two middle-aged white guys weren't cool enough to sit downstairs, and so uh, escorted us to the much smaller upstairs dining room where he sat us at what I think is maybe the worst table in the restaurant. It was We were shoved into a corner, and there was a fan blowing uh, on the table. Not really sure what's up with that. You would think that a, a brand-new restaurant would have enough air conditioning to keep things cool, but we, we turned the fan off. We looked over the menu. It has um, boiled seafood, your choice of shrimp, snow crab, uh, king crab, a couple other options. Uh, a bunch of fried seafood, some starters. So we decided to sample from all three. So we ordered uh, wings, which we asked to be extra crispy, with their uh, Arturo sauce, which is a mixture of spicy and ranch. We ordered uh, a fried seafood platter with catfish, uh, shrimp, and French fries, and hush puppies. And then we ordered uh, a pound of boiled snow crab legs uh we were sitting there thinking that the food was taking a while to come out and wondering if it would all how it would all do uh and the answer is that it was it was very poor as matt said it was more shell shock than shell shack uh the the fried seafood platter was probably the worst of the three things that we ordered which is uh pretty bad the fries were cold and limp. The the catfish was muddy. The shrimp tasted. I mean, the shrimp were were battered well, and they were crispy, but they weren't hot. They were sort of warm. Uh, that's never a good quality in fried food. The same problem plagued plagued the wings. The the request for extra crispy uh, seems to have gotten lost. The flavor of the sauce was good, but. Uh, the texture was not good and the temperature was not good. Again, it was that kind of medium warm instead of hot. That's not a good, never a good quality in food. Uh, we had asked that the snow crab legs be in a garlic sauce with the mild spiciness. Uh, and again, very little garlic flavor in the boil uh, that we could taste. Not hot, which seemed to be the most consistent problem. And just, you know, you got a couple of clusters, you know, a pound is 20 bucks. It just doesn't feel like a lot of value. So, uh, you know, service at a new restaurant is always a little bit hinky. Uh, the waitress seemed to struggle with the handheld computer that she was using to enter the items. Uh, we never had a manager come by the table to ask us how we were doing. So, as we were walking out, we ran into the general manager who said, how was it? 
uh, and we told him in pretty specific, in, in, with the same level of specificity that I'm sharing uh, the details of this meal with you. He uh, gave us his card. He was apologetic. He invited us to go back. Uh, I don't know that I'm going to be able to drag Matt back to Shell Shack for another visit. Uh, I feel sort of professionally obligated to give it another shot, but uh, this is a very expensive uh, build out, like right in the middle of, of all the new stuff going into Washington Avenue. It's it's right down the street from B&B Butchers and Gus's Fried Chicken. It's right around the corner from Poutine. So a lot of competition. And, and more broadly, just if you want fried seafood, you might go to a place like Raging Cajun or Pappas or Papado or Danton's. If you want boiled seafood, there's a million you know, crawfish restaurants that switch over to uh, a broader menu of boiled seafood uh, in the off season. Like certainly I would go, I would go have boiled seafood at Saigon house in Midtown before I would go back to shell shack. I think they've got uh, a ways to go. If they plan to compete, they've uh, announced that they want to open several of these across the Houston area uh, with Katie being their next target. I, uh, I'm I'm willing to believe that it is better than what we experienced, but I'm not sure that a even a better version of Shell Shack is a restaurant that would crack my regular seafood rotation. That does it for our restaurants of the week. Uh, sorry that Matt wasn't here to provide his perspective, but that's it. Uh, I will be right back with Sean Carroll. Stick around. You're listening to What's Eric Eating. Our interview this week is brought to you by 8th Wonder Brewery, one of my favorite local breweries, conveniently located in East Downtown. It's been really fun to watch 8th Wonder evolve from its sort of humble beginnings in a little corner of a warehouse to now a gigantic warehouse, the huge backyard that they call Wonder World, where you can go before sports games, especially with uh, soccer season and baseball season heating up. Eighth Wonders Brewery is conveniently located uh, within walking distance. You might see my colleague Fred Fowler walking around there. I know it's a favorite spot of his. And there's always something new to try at Eighth Wonder. Like they just released their Procrastinator Session IPA, the official beer of doing nothing. They're going to have their hip hop series rolling out here in the next little bit. And, you know, you can always count on an Eighth Wonder beer to be refreshing, delicious and fresh because it's made right here locally all the time. So thank you to 8th Wonder, and here's our interview of the week. I'm joined this week by Sean Carroll, the chef and co-owner of Melange Crepery in the Heights. Sean, welcome to the show. How are you? Hi, guys. How are you doing? It's good to have you here. I've known you for a long time. Mm-hmm. Back in the stand, back in the day. I know, because I remember standing on the corner of Taft and Westheimer dodging traffic to get a crepe from you. Uh, how did you get started? I, I always like to start at the beginning with these interviews. So yeah, yeah. How did you get started making crepes? Um, well, I, I had worked in art previously, and I was a painter and then a curator and then a writer. And in writing for a bunch of publications, national, local, et cetera, I wrote myself out of art. I was like, this is... This is done for me, and I um, 
in that, towards the end, I was getting into performance arts, and therefore, by pushing against what art means, getting into street busking, and from street busking into street food, and I got married, and me and my wife, Tish, had gone to Paris on our honeymoon. We sure did enjoy it, and we ate crepes while we were there, and watching them make it was just the most performative way to make street food I had ever seen. So... She had her own ideas. She was like, you know, randomly in conversation, you know, six months later, I would love a, I would love to have a snow cone stand. If you had a street stand, what would you do? And I said, well, I'd have a, I'd have a crepe stand. But at this point, I was trying to be a, a high school history teacher, actually. And uh, I, I worked at that for a while. And when it didn't come through, I uh, walked out of my terrible job when they wouldn't give me Sundays off to watch the bills. I really believed in them that year. And we're getting don't worry we're going to talk football before this is all done don't worry <laughs> and well it's it really was you know the bills were part of why i did that so uh i had the idea just growing up in new york uh seeing the hot dog guys in buffalo and seeing new york city you know street food of i can make a living just all i wanted to do just i can make a living doing this and so i spent six months either on the couch watching food tv or uh, uh working in the garage and and basically with a, uh, a friend of mine who's a set designer, Abel Wyndham, um, uh, building the first cart that we made. And uh, the guy, the, the permit guy said, there's only two people like this in town. There's a guy who sells hot nuts, hot nuts in the mall, and there is a guy selling hot dogs outside of Cellar Brothers on the south side. Nobody else has street carts in Houston. Right, yeah. You, I mean, you are kind of pre-food truck. Right, like the food truck thing hadn't really happened here because you started, God, I, I wanted what, 2010, 2011? Uh, it was March 2010. The first event we ever did was the last Westheimer uh, block party. Um, I, so that would be November 2009 was the last first, first event that so, I did. So freaky people with not a lot of clothes on, random snakes. That's what I always remember about the Westheimer Street Festival. And, and you slinging crepes. Yes, and I had a lot of lessons to learn, and I'm very glad that they were so drunk that they really gave me a lot of uh, uh, second chances that first day. Uh, one of the things I think that really separates your product from other crepes around town, not that I would ever ask you to denigrate the nah. crepe slinging competition, but you get that crunch in the batter, that textural element, whereas most crepes are kind of soft and mushy. How did you develop that element specifically? I, I stole it, absolutely, like all good uh, artists do. You are only as good as the obscurity of your sources, and I think Mark Flood told me that back in the day, and he's right. But uh, the, the, the thing was, in coming back and thinking about that idea of making crepes, we went and looked at and tasted every crepe in town, which at the time was only two or three, and nothing was similar to the ones that I had had in Paris. So I thought, hey, there is a market here for this. When I started messing with recipes and bought my first crepe maker, and that's another story that actually involves the show uh, Arrested Development, um, I, I, there was... There was nothing that I could get that tasted like the ones I had there until, and this is a super nerdy internet thing, I found somebody's blog on GeoCities. And this is the month before GeoCities collapsed. And he told a story of his grandmother who grew up in Nova Scotia 
And in the story, he had a recipe that had a different ratio for the batter. Started it out. It tasted delicious. It had those crispy edges that I remembered. And it wasn't until about a year and a half later when a woman from Brittany, France, pulled me out of the, you know whatever I was doing and said, by the way, you're using a Southern Britannian recipe. Where did you find it? I told her that about GeoCities, and I have no idea where I found it, but it was different. And she said, everybody uses Northern Britannian. New York City, you know, like all that. In America, they always use a Northern Britannian recipe, but the ratio is different. So I like to tell Texans that I'm using a Southern recipe. Yes, we and and we apparently appreciate it. I think the other thing we appreciate is that, I mean, look, ham and cheese, banana and Nutella. I couldn't take it off the menu if I wanted to. There would be riots. There would be <laughs> protests. But you do experiment quite a bit, and you've embraced kind of international flavors and, and seasonal produce. How did, how did that all get started, or, or when did you kind of decide that was the direction you wanted to go in? That, was, that, that goes back to that, you know, walking out of my job and, and trying to figure out how to actually be a cook. Because I had cooked since I was a little kid, but I was literally terrible at it. And I would wake up at 5.30 in the morning, and, you know, Saturday morning cartoons, this is before the good ones are on. So I'm up so early, I'm watching uh, uh, The Little Rascals and The Three Stooges and reading cookbooks. Go upstairs, make an utter wreck in the kitchen, and come up with scones or grapes and I would make whatever but I just you know was experimenting get into college and literally just dump so much hot sauce into everything you can't taste anything good thing there was a lot of beer involved so how did I learn how to cook I went out to eat and you know even saying it's international flavors it's not it's just what is here in town and we've done over 900 different specials in the past nine years We're going to try to get to every culture in town. It's always starting with the produce. It's always starting with what is in season right now, which is different in Houston than anywhere else. And then from that, you work back to figure out what people are already making here. So I go eat. I figure it out. I work backwards from that. I try to use grandma's recipes. Grandma is like my biggest inspiration. And... Grandma's eyesight isn't that good. She can't chop things up, chop things up very well. She uh, uh, sometimes measures things. Sometimes she just, you know, adds to taste. Absolutely. And as long as we can modify a recipe to make sure that it is the right consistency to fit into a crepe, and we love having contrasting textures, that's about all I want to do to change what Grandma does. All right, since you brought it up, <laughs> how did Arrested Development influence the, the beginning <laughs> of Melange Crepery? Because I, I definitely have not heard that story before. Um, that was the first crepe maker. And uh, I had done my research like you're, like you're a car guy and you really want to get the best car for you. And I came across that I needed to have a Krampus, K-R-A-M-P-O-U-Z. And if you want to buy one for your house, that's great, but really... Don't. They're expensive as hell. On Craigslist in Austin, there was a man who had a, a stack of crate makers in his garage. And I drove up to Austin and ate the crepes that were there at the time. And he told me why he had a shit ton of uh, uh, crate makers in his garage, which was he had planned. There was a great bus, and it was run by two girls who had been inspired by going to Ireland back in the day. 
This bus was right down the street from Barton Springs, and I hear at this point it's actually a giant housing development. They were one of the first food trucks in Austin, which started before Houston. He saw how well they were doing. He wanted to, a few blocks down the way, open up a gigantic crepe restaurant. And he was in real estate, and he was riding that high of 2008 and 2007 and selling things like crazy. When I drove up to Lake Austin to see him, he was living in the model home of an unbuilt development with, you know, just flip-flops and a Hawaiian shirt on, and he couldn't do anything. His real estate thing had utterly collapsed. His idea to open this restaurant had totally been destroyed. He has no capital whatsoever. He just has everything he built to open a crepe restaurant. So he tells me this whole story, and, you know, it was hilarious that, you know, it's one house, for sale sign out front, and uh, 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 just just lots, just empty lots around him. See, now, I think if I had met someone who had utterly failed to open the exact kind of business that I was contemplating <laughs> opening, I would maybe think twice you were not dissuaded. Uh, I, I have returned the favor. Anyone comes to me saying, I want to start a street cart, I want to start a, 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 a food truck, I want to start a restaurant, I say, don't. First <laughs> thing is, do you have another job? And if they have another job, great. Keep at it. If if you are utterly, you know, like pushed into a corner, do it. But there are two types of entrepreneurs, those by choice and those by force. And those by force tend to make it. So how quickly into the life of the cart did you begin to contemplate a restaurant? Oh, I guess this would tie into a friend of mine who passed away. But I, 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 he was an arts patron and a great guy and I'd always see him around. And he drove up one day, and he was a banker for large corporations. Couldn't, couldn't help me directly. But he pulled up, and he said, hey, by the way, Eatsy Boys, Good Dog Hot Dogs, they are all going to hop into a restaurant. You really need to get on this right now because the time is right to strike. Well, And, and we should say life in a food truck or, or even worse on a cart is hard. Like it's really <laughs> right. You've limited storage capacity. You can only make so much food. You're at the mercy of the weather, too hot, too rainy, too cold. You can't sell alcohol. I mean, there's like all these things that you make life as a food truck or as a food cart really hard, especially in Houston. Physically. Absolutely. You know, and I always said, you know, I can only do this for so long and my knees are going to give out. So I'm glad I finally got a restaurant and I'm able to offer people things, you know, Fancy things like seating and restrooms. <laughs> Lemonade. <laughs> Coffee. Yes. Um, so, right. Fitz, so it's, it's been a long journey, um, right? You can, you can Google back into the, the Culture Map archives and see when, you know, it looked like you were going to take the Etsy Boys space on Montrose. Yeah. yeah. Um, that didn't come together. <clears throat> How did you wind up in conservatory? as kind of a prelude to opening uh, the full restaurant. So <clears throat> a friend came to me, talked about opening a restaurant. I said, that's great. Started writing business plan. I came to some people who were great enjoyers of crepes and told them about my plans. And they said, great, show me what you got. And I 
told them, uh, this is awesome. Let me have your money. And uh, my uh, stake in this is that I will do all the work. And that totally fell flat because you got to have skin in the game. And if I wasn't prepared to lose everything, well, then they weren't prepared to uh, uh, lose lose a, a portion of theirs on that, which in hindsight totally makes sense. But at the time, totally destroyed me. I tried. It didn't work. When Mangoes was about to close, then I struck while the iron was hot, did a Kickstarter, raised over 50 grand, and then went back to those people and also had other people who came to me because of the publication of the Kickstarter and wanting to start a restaurant, and they helped as well. At that point, Mangoes closed. We moved into the HEB Montrose. Uh, that was a deal where a guy, basically pre-food hall, wanted to turn all HEBs in Texas into food halls to where you would have five little vendors inside HEB to enliven your experience and really keep the thing going. It's a great idea. He did it too early. It did not work. I was the only one who got no, off the ground. you were. Yeah, and I remember that very well because that's in my neighborhood. Mm. And it was kind of a strange thing, right? You're at the end of the ice cream aisle, mm -hmm. like slinging crepes for people, and I don't know... I mean, maybe they'd heard of you, maybe they hadn't, but I, I just don't know that like the middle of five o'clock grocery shopping is when people want to buy a crate. No. And, you know, it was even more awkward when it was Saturday, Sunday brunch, and you had a line of people blocking your, you know, way to get to the ice cream aisle um, uh, as they're waiting for a crate because they knew us and that was great, but it really did not work for HEB. But if they had you know, contextualized it. I understand. Right. If the, if you'd had a dedicated space, mm -hmm. like, like a little stand, but like to be set up, like in the middle of the aisles, I think that was, yes. that was very, <laughs> I had to deal with what we had to deal with. We were looking for a spot and, uh, the easy boys fell through. Um, I, uh, Steve Redome from, I, 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 Heights Mercantile came to us at the time, said he was starting on this idea and we were, in the grocery store at the time, and we were into it. We had the capital. We were good to go on that. And when their construction was a little slow, eh, it happens. You know, it's normal. But the HEB wasn't going to have us anymore, as the manager of the store said. She was great, lovely lady. But she did remark at one point that I can make more money off of a stack of uh, water bottles than I can off of you. <laughs> And that's more about the margin than it is about anything about me. But um, I, that was her bottom line, and she was right. She really could. Um, I, I, so uh, on uh, I had come and met us at the City Hall Farmer's Market, where we've been since the beginning of that, which was so great that Anise Parker put that together and really pushed us to be in downtown and promote street culture in Houston and he came and he said he's starting this project. And the timeline just fit up, you know, where it was going to be. We got a year before this place is going to open. Let's hop into the first uh, first food hall in town and uh, be on the cutting edge of this before before opening our restaurant. So so what was that experience like? Because, you know, we I, have, I feel like every week we have like some new piece of food hall news. Um, several are opening. I mean, do people come to you? Or are they like, should I do this? <laughs> uh, let's say there's two things to that. You know, like we got into there 
and I, it was great. And it was actually after I had done doing air quotes when I say research, um, I, I'd been to Baltimore and purposely gone to four food halls while I was there. And this is before food halls took off. Uh, I had, had been to Chelsea Market, but that seems a little different. And I went to Baltimore and went to the old school food halls. And they were amazing and dilapidated. The, the, the Broadway Market, when I went there the first time, I was offered drugs three times on the way in the door. Uh, the other time I went there to go to the, uh, uh, go to the Oyster Bar, which was in there, which was amazing. Oh my, uh, there were literally 30 cops outside there. And I don't know what happened between point A and point B, but it's Baltimore and Baltimore be Baltimore in. Oh my. So I went to all these food halls and saw the old school thing. And I know from the Northeast how this stuff works. You put a bunch of people together. It takes, you know, like three hours to get out of the place. You are enjoying yourself while you're going from one thing to the next. And the conservatory is cool. It's smaller than the typical capacity. Actually, Steve talked about this, and he did a lot of research about opening food halls around the same time. He said 30. You need 30 vendors to keep it going, to really make it something where people can always find something new every time they go. And four is what they did. Five if you count the bar. Awesome. Great. And uh, I think they were working with the Downtown Alliance, which really is a great way to enliven downtown. I don't know if they're doing that program anymore, but uh, we were in there and some people got it and some people didn't. And it was some of my regulars who would come to the uh, street stand and come to the grocery store said, oh, I'm sorry, downtown is too far away. <laughs> right. And, and it's not really that downtown is too far away from Montrose because it's really, it's not far at all. But it's a little bit of a hassle. It, it's right? mentally different. You got to pay for parking or worry about parking, which me as a New Yorker, I don't really mind that. But Texans, you want easy parking. Right. And there is something about that block where it just always seems like there's random people hanging out on the corner that want to talk to you. And, you know, sometimes you want to talk to them and sometimes you don't want to talk to them. And, yeah. I, and, and I know that's a hassle, too. We're closer to the uh, uh, courthouses than to all the uh, workers in the, the kind of energy disc where Shell was and stuff like that. And so um, I, uh, it's close to the bars. And I loved my experience in the conservatory because it definitely taught me crepes can be sold at night. And I've known from talking to my regulars for years and stuff, uh, the crepe stands in Paris open at midnight. Or I'm sorry, open at you know, uh, uh, 6 a.m. and close at noon. But the crepe stands in Greece... Open at dusk and close at six in the morning. So it was great. And now we've opened the restaurant and we know that for dinner and being out late, crepes are something. And I, I don't think without that experience in the food hall that I would have set up my business in the same way or even emphasized certain things on the menu if I didn't know, you know, it's ACDC day and night. So one of the things about the stand, right? You. There, there is something about ordering them from you specifically because it's, you know, oh, banana Nutella, heck yeah. And, you know, you have this rapport, you have this, like, this patter that you've developed. Um, how do you, do you train people to do that or do they watch you do that and kind of pick, like, like how do you, because I, cause I really do think that that's, a, that's an important part of the melange experience is, is the interaction between crepe maker and crepe buyer. And so 
yeah, I, I basically just want to know how you recreated that in the restaurant. Um, so it's, uh, it's always based on someone's personality. So, uh, let me, let me go back to, uh, uh, Nick Lungard, who was an awesome espresso guy and, uh, uh, has known the blacksmith crowd and stuff like that forever. And I, um, he worked for me for a little while because he found the experience of serving coffee as similar to serving crepes where you have a certain amount of time and you are working with a customer for that amount and you're filling that time with, you know, a bit of a performance. And uh, he works on computers a lot and he, you know, wanted to get out and do that. So uh, I always uh, would make a joke if I was spreading a crepe and, you know, a, a little hole appeared and I would have to fill it. And I'd say, I, I love crepes so much. They're uh, always so forgiving, just like my wife. <laughs> and then one day, Nick, and then one day, Nick, I heard him say to a customer, they're always so forgiving, just like Sean's wife. And I was like, ah, it's not just time to go there. So you can't copy it, but... In everybody's personality, there is a little bit of that street busker. And so it has to be based on your own references or what you can bring, what you do to, you know, to uh, connect with other people. And I do love that I've found some amazing employees who really can do that. Our night manager, Mason, our uh, general manager, Sarah, who have really been able to put their own spin on it. You know, they are personable, they will teach you, they will talk to you, and they will relate, but it's got to come from within more than anything else. So let me just ask you, how is the restaurant doing? I mean, you opened, you've been open for about a year? Oh, thank you. Yes, uh, uh, almost a year. So October 15th is when we opened, and as of October 15th, we'll be open a year, and November, roughly November 15th, was the last of the... uh, 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 West Summer Block Parties. That will be nine years that we've been in business. Good Lord. <laughs> it's been a while, huh? Um, uh, piece by piece. Um, uh, we are well on the weekends, nice and busy for brunch. Weekdays, it's chill, but it comes along, and we've got some great events during the week that we do. We are working on beer and wine now that the Heights is wet. We've been working with the city and with TABC, and it's been about eight months. And as I hear from everybody else, that's pretty much par for the course. But in the fall, quite soon, cross my fingers, we will be able to do beer and wine. And I think that will really enliven what our weekday and weeknight uh, – or weekday and weekend nights are like, um, uh, to where you can have a beer or have a glass of wine with a crepe. And – do the brunch thing, you know, do some sangria, do some agua fresca mimosas and be able to push that and really take it to the next level after settling down over over a year and figuring things out. Well, yeah, I, I think that's that probably will help you because I having having stopped by for dessert last night, uh, needing to erase the memory of the terrible meal I referenced earlier <laughs> in the show, uh, I think I probably would have had it like. I probably would have had a glass of wine instead of my strawberry lemonade just because, you know, it, at 8 o'clock or whatever. Like, I don't necessarily want another Topo Chico or a soda. I certainly don't want coffee. Like, it's it's that time of night when, you know, and it's kind of a nice dessert option, uh, especially at the end of a date, right? Like, a, you know, a crepe and a, a bottle of wine or a couple glasses of wine seems like a a nice way to kind of wind down an evening. 
I, I love that. I love being complimentary. And as far as how the Heights is going with really thickening different places, I like, I like to be a destination. That's great. Come see me. Go back home. Awesome. But the capacity for the whole neighborhood becoming something where you go from one thing to the next, either by bike or walking or driving really short distances and really wrapping together an experience of like three or four, five things in a row is amazing. And so I want to be that. I want to be that for people. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, I'm well, and Heights Mercantile is so nice because you have local foods and you have Postino. And so it's not hard to imagine someone having a meal at either one of those two places and being like, you know, crepe sounds good. Mm-hmm. Crepe you. is, and, and, you know, with all the development going on in 19th street and you're connected by the, the bike trail. I mean, you, yeah, I mean, you're, you're really part of something that's growing in a really nice and kind of organic way. I, I'm so, it's so awesome that I negotiated it three years ago and just thought, Hey, the Heights, Washington, Montrose, they're all, they're all even at this point. And three years later, the Heights is ascendant, and uh, uh, everybody else is trying to figure it out. But Montrose is, is having things close like crazy, and, and Washington is as it is. It's definitely changed from the, you know, a, a twenty something, early twenty something bar scene. But you know, Washington is having its own struggles. But it's, they're they're all thickening and changing, and the Heights seems to have a clear direction. I'm so happy to have landed where I did. So. Now that you've been open for about a year, do you think about another location or are you kind of content uh, with where you are? Mm, uh, the, the idea would be between uh, uh, do I open another location or do I do a completely different idea because I'm always so ridiculously full of ideas. Oh, see, it's never <laughs> occurred to me to think of you as anything other than a crepe maker. Oh, absolutely. But I, I, I worked in art. And so that was great. And you'd go to a gallery, you'd see art everywhere. And now I see food everywhere. And I go to grocery stores as my museums. And uh, we have ideas and that would be cool. And we'll see what pans out. But really coming down solid on figuring out what Melange Crapery is and really uh, uh, being able to put it together in a way where we can be spontaneous with the menu and yet have it codified enough to where I don't have to have my hand on the till at all times. That's uh, uh, That remains to be seen. But really, I am so impressed with how our staff has come together and really become a team that I can see, you know, I, I, I can see it going one way or the other. Do we start a second one or do we do, we do something completely different? And then I don't want to I don't want to let this conversation wrap up without acknowledging that you are the reigning champion of my fantasy football league. Oh, yay! Uh, the one that I... <laughs> it, it's essentially an excuse for my two brothers-in-law and I to talk shit to each other for six months. <laughs> but I have roped a few friends into participating. And chef friends, yeah. Yes, yes. And you are one of them. Um, are you looking forward to defending your your illustrious title? Uh, well, let's say this. I learned a lot I learned a lot from my uh, Justin, uh, my uh, who is an amazing fantasy football player, and I don't know how he has the time. I think that's why he like has chef de cuisines now, so he can devote more time to fantasy. Yeah, football. I can see it because he makes so many moves. And the yeah. deal is, you got to look at the waiver wire, and you got to look at the matchups. 
So for years and years, I would have the same hope that I have about the Bills every year that I did about my fantasy football team and say, next time, next time we'll get them. And now this time I'm like, screw that. Andy Dalton is playing a terrible team. I'm going to pick him up for the week and drop him next week like a hot rock because he's terrible. But you can always score but against two the Browns, touchdowns. Right. Yes, you can always score two touchdowns against the Browns. So I've learned to use that waiver wire well. And, you know, it, uh, uh, in addition, just to be able to, um, I, I, you know, drop things when it, it seems like it's not going to be working. It was hilarious last year. Who was it that picked up? Uh, uh, Ezekiel Elliott, knowing that he was going to be suspended for six weeks and actually dropping money in the draft for him. Oh, I yeah. Was like, Psh, this, this, that was ridiculous. that was one of my brothers. It, it probably was. One of your brothers is talking huge, smack. Huge the Cowboys one, fan. Not so yeah, yeah. The yeah. other one's very quiet. See, there you go. He's a homer for them. Right. I'm a homer for the Bills. I can't help it. All right. And what did you do with the money you won? Oh, geez. I did do something silly with it. As you must. I think I went to Kaboom Books with it and blew like 40 bucks on on art books, comic comic books, most likely. All right. <laughs> um, Sean, this has been terrific. The, the time has just flown by for me. Uh, I always wrap these interviews up with something I call the lightning round. Mm. Five easy questions, five short answers. Cool. Just say the first thing that comes to mind. Yes. What's the first restaurant you ever worked at? Oh, it's got to be a short answer. Mesa Grill. Okay. Next to River Oaks Theater back in the day. Long deceased. Who's the first band you ever saw in concert? Matthew Sweet, St. Bonaventure University. Nice. Um, what is your fast food guilty pleasure that comes from a restaurant with a drive-thru? I hate drive-thrus. I can't. Don't do drive-thrus. Uh, I usually ask people who their favorite Houston sports figure is, but instead I will ask you, who's your favorite Bill of all time? Bruce Smith. And where is your favorite place to get a taco? Taco Nazo. Very nice. Um, Sean, give us the... Social media, website, all that for Melange Crapery. Yeah, Melange Crapery. You can catch us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And if that is tough to spell, that's why we got HoustonCrepes.com. M-E-L-A-N-G-E-C-R-E-P-E-R-I-E. Thank you. Uh, and, of course, you can follow me on Twitter at E. Sandler, on Instagram at Eric Sandler. Keep it locked on CultureMap.com for all the latest Houston bar and restaurant news. Thanks so much for listening. I'll be back.